welcome back to the Balancing Act podcast. I'm Andy Tempty. On the Balancing Act, we talk to business leaders and industry experts to explore the balancing acts we play in our professional lives and learn about the events that put rocket boosters behind their career success. Today, we have Larissa Tchaikovsky joining us. Larissa is the U.S. Chief Human Resources Officer and Head of Talent Reskilling and Acceleration at BMO. As you might expect, we'll be focusing our attention today on the world of people, resources, and skills. Welcome to the show, Larissa. Thank you so much, Andrew. And yes, that title is quite a mouthful. <laughs> it really is. I've interviewed a number of people in the in the human resources space, and the titles just keep getting longer and longer. I'm interviewing a gentleman uh, from J.P. Morgan Chase uh, on, on Monday. And, uh, his title is amazingly longer than yours oh, is. Wow. <laughs> he wins. So, he wins the prize. He does. He wins the prize. Larissa, before we get started, uh, we do this, uh, with all of our guests. Uh, if you please tell our listeners your story. Sure. Thank you. Well, I am a very proud Canadian who's been living in the U S now for almost eight years Uh, My career brought me here eight years ago, but I actually grew up in rural Ontario, Canada on a farm and had an opportunity to really uh, experience the rural life before um, integrating into city life. And, you know, I, I started my career very early. I I did a lot of really fun things growing up. I had the opportunity to be a ski instructor and a piano teacher um, and uh, do a lot of volunteer work before uh, taking a degree, a very unique degree, actually. It's a combination of business and sociology in a way, really, and uh, learned a new language. We had to study a new language, so I I learned Spanish and then study economics um, abroad for a year in the new language. So I went and moved to Argentina. And had the opportunity to spend a year there studying economics in Spanish, which was a wonderful experience. Uh, gives me it gave me a whole new appreciation of actually inclusion, which we can maybe talk a little bit about later on. Um, before uh, joining um, Deloitte in the consulting business, then I went back and took an MBA, very traditional path, back into consulting before joining Bank of Montreal about seventeen years ago. And have had the opportunity to work in a multitude of different areas of the bank. I've been very fortunate everywhere from corporate strategy to uh, human resources, technology and operations, uh, leading our U.S. wealth management business before boomeranging back actually into the human resources space. And so have had the opportunity to have some pretty uh, unique and incredible life and career experiences. So my story is one of fulfillment and joy for sure. Yeah, that that's awesome. And I think one lesson that we can take uh, from your educational experience mm-hmm. is uh, promoting this union between what some call the liberal arts, mm-hmm. and in your case, uh, sociology, and business. So business and history, business and psychology, business and sociology. The, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of those business and yeah. uh, paths. It, you know, if you had to pick one event in your life that just put rocket boosters behind your career, what is that? Yeah, I, it's not one event, but I will say I was so fortunate early in my career to have that consulting experience. I always say consulting is a rocket booster for a couple of reasons. First is 
the level of intensity in the work. You are working hard, you're getting continual feedback. You get very good at receiving feedback because you're forced to, you're being put into positions where you might not always be an expert on something. You have to learn very quickly. And there's many people giving you feedback along the way. The second is it's project-based work. So you have a chance to work in different industries with different types of clients. And so you are exposed. And for me, it was very early in my career, early in my 20s, um, to a lot very early. And it gives you that chance to sort of widen your cup, you know, do that type of horizontal learning early in your career. And I think it just gives you that chance to think a little differently. The other thing that comes in a consulting environment is a structured methodology or process to problem solving. And that is a skill you take with you your whole life, whether it's at work or even sometimes at home, uh, being able to logically break apart a problem and, and think through the process to solve it in a, you know, a logical, structured way uh, can really differentiate you, actually, as you continue uh, in your life and career. Sometimes maybe always for the good at work, maybe sometimes uh, not as great at home when logic takes over for emotion. But it is something that really, <laughs> for me, uh, helped a lot. Uh, I think in, in bringing me to where I am today, really. That's awesome. Uh, you know, Larissa, you have a broad range of experiences in people resources, many balancing acts that we can discuss in, in this area. Uh, but let's start in the office of the CHRO. If you had to choose the most important balancing act that the, the head of people resources, head of human resources plays in any organization, mm -hmm. what would that be? Well, I think right now it's, first of all, an extremely important role. We're in a polycrisis world. And so the balancing that really needs to happen is continually being on top of what is happening externally in the environment and balancing with, you know, what's in the best interest of our employees in that environment. And the two are often, to be honest, on the surface at odds, you know, um, financial services where I'm working today is going through what many people call a banking crisis. I think that might be um, not 100% accurate, but we are going through a challenging economic time. We've seen uh, several large financial institutions fail. And so we're going through a challenging time as, as an industry. And what does that mean to our employees? It often means, you know, we're managing expenses, we're trying to um, you know, reskill people because a business they might have been in yesterday, we're going to divest, or maybe we're making a big acquisition. And the environment really plays into that. And so balancing, you know, everybody thinks a good CHRO is a touchy feely, nice person who goes in and makes sure people have, you know, or, or actually in some organizations, HR is seen as, as the, um, you know, the people who sit in the balcony and basically are just enforcing policy. Right, but right. the reality is much more nuanced than that. And being able to balance that, the constant changing environment with creating stability and confidence and trust in employees while you're going through that, where, you know, people, the person sitting next to someone might not be there tomorrow. How do you keep the confidence of the person who's still here driving the business forward. It's part of, you know, being in business as things change and there's transformation along the way. But, you know, the CHRO plays in a really important role in maintaining that cultural stability while helping the company grow and shift 
um, around the environment around it. And that yeah. sometimes is a tough, that's a polarity in some cases. Yeah, what I'm, the undertones of what I'm hearing you say is that uh, that change management mm-hmm. is uh, at the at or near the top of the list in that uh, in that balancing act uh, that you're playing. Uh, everybody moves through change at different paces, mm-hmm. and uh, you know I've I've seen the offices of the CHRO in some companies I've worked with that just take this everybody's going to move through this change at the same pace and, you know, that make these kind of blanket assumptions about your people. I'm really happy that you're bringing out the, the nuance here and that everybody moves through change differently. There's no one size fits all approach for sure. Um, whether it be that you, you look at that at the business level, you know, often if you have a multi business, you know, organization, each business is going to have its own nuances and all the way down right to the employee level, there's going to be those unique elements and aspects. And, and so ensuring that you're not going to have a customized change approach for every single employee, that's a manager's role. But what people in culture, which is what we call HR at BMO, what we do, though, is provide a nice framework and some guardrails so that leaders have what they need to drive that change and feel supported in that change. Uh, and I think that's an important role too, as you go through, you know, these, these various journeys as an organization. Yeah. You know, BMO is a very large company and to be able to create that environment of a customized experience for the individual within the context of a really big company that that's uh you know kudos to the work that you're you're doing there uh lara so let's narrow the scope of that previous question to you and mm-hmm. your career arc what's the most important balancing act that you've played that's contributed to your career success yeah, I think there's two things. I have I think there's two balancing acts if I can if I can talk about yeah. two different ones. One is a work one, which is very much that enterprise hat that I wear on a daily basis helping the company be successful. But then it's my individual team leadership. And that is a really big balancing act because often, you know, I won't say they're at odds with one another, but the interpretation, the application at an individual team level is quite different and balancing getting to the North Star or the end goal or strategy of the organization while personally focusing on, you know, the what we call our winning culture every single day with individual team members and understanding what motivates them. And, you know, it, it's an interesting balancing act. Because what, you know, what I, what one of my team members might want is quite different, perhaps in the purpose or vision of the company, or it may be exceptionally well aligned and just guiding people to where they need to go is enough. And so that's sort of the work one. And, and then, you know, there's always to the personal side of things too. It's balancing work and personal. And we always talk about, you want to bring your, your full self to work. Well, you can't have you know, you can't have a full self of work if you don't have a full self outside of work too. And so I'm constantly balancing, you know, as you can imagine, big company, uh, big leadership role. I spend a lot of time at work. And so balancing and carving out the time I need from a personal perspective, I like to be involved in the community. I sat on several not-for-profit boards. I actually recently sat on 
the public, a public board uh, doing psychedelic medical research, uh, spending time with my friends and family, and not to mention squeezing in time to travel, which is my favorite thing to do. And so finding time to balance those two things, recognizing can't be effective at work without being effective in personal life. And, you know, understanding that and recognizing that I actually think has helped my career because I see it in others and really try to make sure I'm making that space for them too. Yeah. I just, I just love what you said there. Uh, and I just like to, you know, double click. I, I hate that phrase, double click, but I was at a loss for words, how you can't bring your whole self to work. If you don't have a whole self outside of work, um, our, you know, our, hopefully our listeners really hone in on that. Uh, so thank you. Uh, before we go to a very brief commercial break, let's lay a little groundwork for the second half of the show. Tell us a little more about what talent reskilling and acceleration, uh, means in your responsibilities at BMO. Sure. You know, if we were to take a traditional approach with that role, we would have called it a chief learning officer. But it's about so much more now. And the role really is about that. I do have the learning team as part of my as part of my team. But it's a recognition of people and culture or HR plays a huge role in helping the rest of the organization be successful, especially as we become a much more digital company. Banks are technology companies now. And so this idea of acceleration goes beyond just what I would call the traditional HR function and sitting alongside business leaders and business partners every day to say, what do you need in your business to be successful? And how can we accelerate that using skills and people to get you there. And so it's a broader frame of reference really around the role that HR can play across an organization. Of course, all of HR comes to the table at the end of the day, but I might be sitting in a seat where I'm a catalyst for that and my team would be. Awesome. Well, we're going to take a very short commercial break. We'll be right back with Larissa Tchaikovsky. I'm Andy Tempty. My new book, The Balanced Business, is scheduled for release on October 3rd. This book blends everything I've learned over the last 35 years and details the management operating system I would deploy if I could go back and do it all over again. The Balanced Business is a practical, real-world guide to help businesses achieve long-term success that's built on a culture of trust balanced with accountability. Balanced Business is available for pre-order on Amazon.com today. And we're back with Larissa Tchaikovsky talking about all things human capital. Larissa, back in episodes 31 to 35 of this show, and, you know, we just celebrated episode 100 uh, on the show. Congratulations. Uh, yeah, thank you. Th those episodes were dedicated to the reskilling revolution as defined by World Economic Forum. What, what innovations are you seeing in the talent acquisition space to improve accessibility and equity through the development of alternative pathways into meaningful jobs in the financial services sector? Yeah, it's such a good question. And, and kudos uh, to using the World Economic Forum as your goal or as your north star on this, because they really are pushing not just the corporate world, but 
you know, the educational sector and governments to really be thinking about this seriously, recognizing, and I'm sure in those episodes, you talked about the half-life of skills and how quickly the world is changing and the need to do this. I think there's a couple of ways, and I would say most organizations are, although we have grand visions and goals, are at our infancy stage of really putting this into practice to action, to be honest. So there's a couple of things that are happening. One is, I think, really defining exceptionally clearly what the value proposition is for working in your organization. You really need to want people to work with you, especially in an environment that's increasingly competitive in in the, you know, in in the space, we, we know there are shortages of tens of millions of people in digital and technology across the world right now. It may not seem that way with some of our recent trends that we've seen out in the market with you know, layoffs from technology firms, but there's still a lot of um, a, a need for these skill sets. We don't have enough to keep up. Um, so getting people. The second is a focus on inter- internal talent mobility, actually. Constantly looking outside for your talent will not get you what you need because there's not enough people outside. So that balance of developing internal talent with external talent is really important as well. And how do you do that? I am a big advocate and sometimes my colleagues roll their eyes at me, although they they know it's the right thing. I just, I'm such a passionate um, advocate for it is putting skills at the center of everything you do. Yeah. Being able to demonstrate that you do something well is more important than whatever degree or years of experience you have on a piece of paper. And we recently actually just rewrote 30 job descriptions and made them 100% skill-based. Nice. Um, Primarily, we're starting, to be honest, our our incubation space is is in the digital and technology area. But the idea is, let's use that, this as a pilot, to see how it works and grow from there. Why does that matter so much? It matters because if you have really well-defined skills, you can actually assess talent internally and externally against those skills in a very objective way. And in the past, we haven't had a lot of that. You know, we might put people through personality assessments or, you know, these different things to see if they're fits for roles. Those are important. Those skills are very important as well. But being able to objectively assess people against skills is what really takes away a lot of barriers and recognizes that at the core of a skill can often not always be applied across any industry. And so a credit skill, sure, that's a very financial services centric skill. But 90% of the skills we need to run a big company like BMO are universal. And and defining those and putting them at the center allows you to recruit for those skills, to develop for those skills, to match people to jobs based on those skills. You can pull the thread all the way across somebody's career. you know, and so I, I'm really a believer in putting the skills at the center of what you do. Yeah, we, you and I could literally extend this show to a, an hour or an hour and a half talking mm-hmm. about the how of mm-hmm. how that's happening. What, what I'd like to stress about what you just, uh, what you just uh, uh, illuminated for us is that we are at the infancy stage mm-hmm. of really getting that uh, the you know a skills based talent economy going you know you you can read in the popular press and you can you see LinkedIn posts etc that give the perception that we're a lot farther along uh, than we actually are so 
thank you, thank you, thank you for kind of grounding us in the fact that we're still in the experiment, the experimentation uh, stage there. Um, what specific advice do you have for your colleagues in the financial services industry and other sectors who are trying to improve equity and diversity in their organization and shed some of these legacy barriers uh, to entry? You, we talked about the thou shalt have a degree for job X. Uh, you know, we, we need to improve accessibility. We need more uh, balance, female, male, uh, people of, of all sorts of uh, backgrounds and, and, and colors. Uh, what, uh, what, what specific advice do you have uh, for your colleagues? And the first one, which might be a controversial statement, is we have to acknowledge that there have been systemic barriers to begin with. Yep. And I actually think, you know, and this, I know this is not a political show, but I think we're up against a battle on that right now. One that will play out in a lot of different ways. And acknowledging that is really the first step in actually being successful in doing things that will make a difference because you also need to be systemic in how you put programs in place. So that's the first thing that matters. The second is being very public about it. At BMO, we actually, our strategy is called zero barriers to inclusion. Nice. That is a very high bar. <laughs> that is a very high bar. And so we do some of the traditional things like saying you must have diverse slates for every role that you fill. You demonstrate that you've really taken the time to be thoughtful. Uh, you know, make sure you're hiring people who have potential for roles, not who have checked every box because everybody brings different things to the table that might not be on your job description or in your role profile. And so opening your aperture to say, what does my team really need to be successful? If I look at my, and, and instead of only actually looking at the individual, looking at the team as a whole. When I look at the table, do I have different perspectives? Do I have different um, people who, with different educational backgrounds, different life experiences? Because that person might bring something equally valuable to the table as the person who's an expert in their job. And so it's opening the aperture to say what, what somebody can bring to the table may look differently if you think differently about filling out the whole versus just one person at a time sometimes too. And then the, the third one, and I'm going to bring it back to skills, actually. Skills allows you to digitize a lot of what I call the talent experience that someone can have, which sometimes opens up the doors because you can democratize. If it's digitized, Everybody can have access in the same way. You don't have to rely on a people manager who, you know, as much as I'd love to say every manager we have in our organization is amazing, it's inconsistent. But when you digitize something, um, you everybody can experience that in the same way. I can have access to every job if this, you know, if it's mapped back to those skills. I don't have to know the person who is the hiring manager, which is a lot of what happens today, right? I know that person, they know me, I hire the person that I know. Um, and so you create a lot of trust in the system when you digitize like that, because people can say, okay, I'm having the same experience as the person next to me as the person next to me. doesn't matter my background. I'm getting access to the same opportunities as other people are, no matter what their resume might say. Yeah. How, 
a little bit of a side tour here, but sure. you know, a lot of folks uh, talk about the impact of diversity, diversity of voices, opinions, uh, backgrounds, et cetera, on business results. Mm-hmm. And the, a lot of the naysayers are saying uh, it doesn't matter to business results. And wh- what do you, what do you say to those, to the naysayers there? Well, I say, um, you look at the facts. I mean, it's been proven time and time again, organizations that are diverse, that have diverse boards of directors, diverse leadership teams, and diversity across the organization have better business results. It's proven, actually. I don't have a number at my fingertips in this moment, but you can just, anybody can type into Google and you'll find the facts. It's very clear. That's the first thing. But, But diversity on itself is not what makes a company successful. It has to be the diversity plus the inclusion piece of it because diversity is a number. Inclusion means I'm actually being able to use my diverse background in a way where I feel safe, where I feel valued, where I feel trusted. And then you're going to get the best out of me and I'm going to actually contribute and feel safe maybe providing my different perspective and point of view. As a leader, sometimes it can be really hard to have a diverse team, but you're going to get a better outcome. Yeah. You know, and... and Figuring out a way to master that inclusion part of it to me is the harder part than there's just the diversity. But the facts, they speak for themselves. Yeah. And I always encourage people, go find them because right. you know it's pretty hard to refute it when you see Fortune 500 companies that have diverse um, leadership teams or diverse boards tend to be much more successful than those who aren't. Yeah. And thank you for really highlighting the value of psychological safety mm-hmm. uh, w- within organizations. If uh, you know, you can have all the grand plans of uh, creating diverse teams, bringing in diverse voices, but boy, if I don't uh, feel psychologically safe to bring my whole self into that conversation, nothing is going to happen. Um, Larissa, uh, if you had access to a time machine and could send a message to an earlier version of you, what would that message and what previous version of yourself do you press the send button to? Yeah. I, you know, and, and I think I, I send it back into probably my twenties where this was ingrained in me that every problem needed to be solved. Right. I now wish I could tell myself that not every problem needs to be solved right away. It's a very heavy weight for leaders to carry on their shoulders if they're trying to solve world peace, right? And it being able to recognize that some things, A, will solve themselves. Others you can delegate to solve to other people, but some things can linger and it's actually okay. And getting comfortable sitting in that discomfort of Things going on around you that might not be perfect and getting more comfortable with that, it actually can give you uh, some extreme clarity on what to really focus on. Whereas if you jump right into problem solving mode right away, you lose the big picture of what actually might be happening and going on. And so if I, you know, it took me a long time to realize that. And actually I realized it when I worked with a leader who used to, who let it happen all the time. And to be honest, it drove me a little crazy because I'm like, how are they not seeing that this needs to get done? Why are they not doing anything? But actually re- recognizing the clarity that comes from just being the calm and letting sometimes that storm revolve around you um, 
has been something I've really learned. And I'm very appreciative that I worked for a person who operated that way because it's made me a better leader. Yeah. That's a, that's a wonderful message. Uh, so many people start their careers and they get into that firefighting mode mm -hmm. and then they just can't let go of uh, really the rush that comes from being a firefighter in an organization. And boy, as you, as you said, it can, the, the weight of that can really, really get at you. And, and frankly, that's what we reward in, in organizations. We reward the heroics. We reward yeah. the people who come in and save the day. Right. And, um, and, and we should, and you do need to pick your spots and do that sometimes. But I do think a more balanced approach to that is, is definitely, there's another balancing act, I suppose, yes. um, you They're know, everywhere. that you need to really, to <laughs> yeah, that you really need to take into consideration. Yeah. All right, Larissa, final question. Mm -hmm. What excites you about the future of people resources management and what keeps you up at night? It's the same thing which is generative AI. I, um, I cannot wait to see where this takes us. I think it's going to make us so much more productive, so much more efficient. Um, it's going to allow us to re-vector if we do a good job reskilling people into work that's exciting and interesting that people want to do. Like that gets me so excited. Yep. Uh, what keeps me up at night is the, you know, we haven't quite got the ethical AI part mastered yet. And right. if the first piece of it runs faster than the second, we could find ourselves in a very challenging situation in many cases. And so, you know, you know, a lot of people say, well, AI will replace people. It's, we all know that's not going to happen. And uh, there will be always room for human intelligence, individual human intelligence. You can't have AI without humans feeding it. We right. know this. And so uh, that's, you know, I get really excited about the art of the possible and it keeps me up at night that there's not always, there's always bad actors out there. And so how do we manage in those two things in parallel so we can take advantage of all of the good while managing some of the scary that might come along with it? Yeah. Very eloquent. Thank you very much. Uh, we've had uh, Larissa Tchaikovsky on the show today. What, a, what an illuminating conversation. Thank you for your contributions uh, to the public good and to our listeners. My name is Andy Tempty. This is the Balancing Act podcast. Please like, subscribe, rate, and share. We're on all the major uh, podcast services, and we will see you next time.